Hi, I'm Tim Crosby and welcome to 3 to 1, a podcast brought to you by Athletics Victoria. In this series, we will be talking to some of Australia's highest profile athletes about three of their most memorable performances, whether it's winning Olympic gold, executing the perfect plan, or an event that set them on a path to greatness, we will delve into the performance together with their coach to get a full understanding of the emotion, drama, success, or failure that makes the sport of athletics so exciting. Now, I'm fortunate to be joined in our first edition of 321 by Olympic champion Steve Hooker. Welcome along, Steve. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, joining us too, and the whole concept we've got here with 321, we're going to have an expert uh, commentator who's had a lot to do with you. And our expert, you know, there's none other in Victoria. Who else would we go to? Mark Stewart. Welcome along, Mark. Thanks, Tim. G'day, Mark. Good to get you two talking again. Uh, we've had a little bit of chat off air, but um, you know, obviously a strong relationship between the two of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I sort of owe everything to Mark. Um, he got me started in uh, this sport that I love so much. I um, kicked off at Box Hill by you know watching him him coaching Emma for a long period of time, Emma George, and eventually plucked up the courage to ask him if I could have a go at. Uh, at jumping and I think I think my my first day was about a week after Emma left and and moved to Adelaide so there was um a bit of a transition there Mark is that right am I re- remembering that correctly yeah something yeah pretty I think pretty close to that sort of thing yeah 1997 so coach Steve from 1997 to 2006 and yeah. can you remember that conversation Mark can you remember the young Steve Hooker who was a he was a bit of a beast, wasn't he? He was a good sprinter, had a wonderful background with his mum and dad, both being you know, high-profile athletes. And what did you think when he came over and said, oh, can I have a go at doing the pole? Well, I mean, not exactly, but Steve at the time was a probably similar height to who he was now, but he weighed 60-something kilos. So he was, he was, you know, and that was, that's when I mean, he was, what is he, 15 or 16, I think, 15. So, uh, you know, he, he wasn't necessarily... I mean, I knew his pedigree. In fact, um, Wes Windsor, who used to help out with Steve with some training and things there, mentioned it to me first, who's one of the distance coaches at Box Hill. And, um, yeah, you could see, obviously he had a great pedigree, but but initially, because of, you know, just development and all that sort of stuff, you, it wasn't necess- wasn't obvious initially that he was going to be a super athlete. Um, I remember the conversation, have... Mark. I remember you okay. were packing up the pit and putting poles away, and I mm-hmm. had to hold Jessica, who would have been, about six months old, I reckon. I reckon she would have been about as old as my Jackson is now. Jessica was born in, yeah, Jessica is 20. No, uh, she was born in 19, the end of 1996. So, yeah, she was a bit over six months, something like that. There you that. go. Yeah, yeah, good guess. <laughs> all right, absolutely wonderful to reminisce. Look, we don't have to go through all of your achievements, Steve. I'll just mention a few, I, I suppose. Let's, yeah, boost I'll be up good if you did, Tim. Just remind me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you, you are... An Olympic gold medalist, and that was uh, Beijing uh, 2008 uh, with a clearance of 5.96. You're also world champion 2009 in Berlin, 5.90 there. At the same time, you're world indoor champion with the championship record at 6.01, Commonwealth Games champion 2006-2010, World Cup in 2006, Continental Cup in 2010. Wasn't much. There was a period there I think you held every major championship. Yeah, I, I did, I think. Um, That's pretty rare, Steve Hooker. Yeah, I think maybe, I think Sally maybe got it done at one point as well. So um, to be in the same company as Sal is pretty good. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's good. Um, 
I don't know. I, at the time, I like it was good that, that that was the case, but it was at that point in time. I think after winning um, Continental Cup in 2010, that I really just thought all I want to do is break the world record, and ultimately that didn't happen. Um, but that you know, like when you're in that headspace and you're competitive, that's that was the one thing that I didn't have, and I desperately wanted to do it, and was trying to put in place a plan that would allow that to happen. Well, no pun intended, but for a pole vaulter, you would have thought it's all up from there. <laughs> <laughs> you would have but all right unfortunately it was all downhill from there as it turned out but that's the way it goes no no well look we'll go into some of those great performances soon but you you also uh, joined the six meter club in january of 08 over in perth uh and the olympic gold medal i don't think a lot of australians because i certainly didn't know this but you're one of only seven men australian men to win a track and field olympic gold medal and when you did that was the first time since ralph Dubell in uh, 1968 so it was a 40-year gap uh, for australia winning a track and field gold medal so it was a pretty momentous occasion for us wasn't it yeah well and ralph was my dad's training partner so nice <laughs> bit of continuity there and and i think um um it was which it was john winter am i am i getting yes. that wrong mark john winter was the high jumper that was prior to uh, Nick, Win- Nick Winter. Yeah, Nick Winter. And Nick Winter had passed about a year before, I think, like 2007 or something, and he was the last field event athlete that had won, male, that had won a gold medal. So he just passed. So there was, there was a small window where we didn't have a living field event gold medalist, actually, but then we, we yeah. still got that back. Yeah, you're in prestigious company there with Flack. The two winters, John and Nick, uh, Herb Elliott, and Ralph Dubell, and Jared Talent with his awarded later after the event gold medal so yeah so a wonderful achievement there so look we'll get on to your three two one shortly but uh steve hooker mark stewart thank you so much for giving your time to the three two one podcast and helping athletics victoria out with our pursuits in getting things really happening and getting a lot of information out there in this really strange times so our concept here is three two one uh Steve Hooker is going to reveal to us what he believes to be his three best performances in order, starting at number three. Steve, what do you see as your third best performance? Uh, well, I think my third best performance was my best achievement, and that was winning an Olympic gold medal in 2008. And the performance was jumping 596 on my third attempt, which was at the time an Olympic record. Yeah, it really was a big achievement, wasn't it? As we said, you know, first Australian gold medal for such a long time and first field medal for for even longer. You came into the competition at 560. Was that the sort of the normal range that you'd be you're entering a competition of that level? Yeah, that at that point in time, 560, 565, something like that. I would I would generally come in at. And I jumped that. Did I jump 565 in the qualifying round, I think? Um, so I jumped I'd already jumped out. I kind of understood how the, the setup there was going to work and what poles I needed to. So I felt pretty pretty confident coming into that height, and which I it took three attempts in the qualifying round, but in the final over in, on my first, which made me feel good at the start of that competition. Well, yeah, throwing to you, Mark, what's the, you know, that first attempt clearance at 560, what does that mean to a jumper? Oh, it means an awful lot, uh, especially as he had problems in the warm-up. You want to hit it. On a pole, you know, I mean, lots of things can go wrong. Pole is a very, very fluky business. You can be in the best form of your life and just pick this, have the stands in the wrong place, grip at the wrong height, the pole not quite the right, either too stiff, too soft, the wind blows at the wrong time. And so it, it, I always say, um, I reckon I know something about pole vault, but I never bet on it. 
and uh, it's really pretty, you know. So, so you and I mean, it's it's bad, but it's good because it means whoever you're against, you've always got a chance. But so yeah, hitting the first jump in at the in a, in a big final and doing a good vault and feeling confident is really really important. But the the series then, Steve might not have sort of gone to plan. And as Mark was saying, you could have been out very quickly and not been even in the middle medal contention. Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess what happens next is I, I jump 561st attempt and there's still a lot of people in the competition at that point. And so the amount of jumps that would have taken place, I don't have the exact number, but between me jumping a 561st attempt and taking a first attempt at 580 when there was only three or four, three or four guys left in the comp, it's a long time, um, and the, trick, the conditions there were quite tricky in Beijing. There was, a, there was a big stadium door right in front of the pole vault pit, so the wind would come in there and blow a bit of a headwind, and that, would, that was a bit gusty. That, in terms of stadium winds, it was a little bit of a gusty kind of wind, and it was a really hard track as well in Beijing. And so you'd finish late on qualifying two nights before and come out, and everyone, I think, was feeling that. Like everyone's legs were heavy. No one was jumping particularly well. And I include myself in that. I didn't feel good. It was good to get a first up clearance, but I didn't feel good um, getting down the runway or anything like that. And, and certainly didn't, didn't feel good at any point during five, five meters 80, you know, first attempt, second attempt, third attempt, just kind of scraped my way through that. And likewise at five meters 85, just didn't feel good. Um, just was trying to make it work. So it really felt like a championship then, didn't it, Steve? Because this is the thing. You don't necessarily go into a championship thinking PBs and those things. It's just how do I extract a medal or hopefully a win out of this competition? And as you're saying, probably a lot of the comp- competitors were in the same mindset. So it's really that mental strength then, isn't it, round after round and, and height after height? Yeah, and we, we came in with a strategy where I would take all three attempts at every height. So I, I'd come unstuck in... Um, Osaka the year before at the World Championships trying to pass my way to a win. So I'd, I'd passed a third attempt from 585 to 590 um, trying to get the win. If I, I, I probably, the jump I put up probably wouldn't have made the difference anyway, but you know, 585 still would have won me a medal there and I would have had three jumps at 590, which ultimately would have won that meet. So there's, you know, we, we came in with this strategy that I was fit enough and strong enough to just keep jumping as long as I needed to. But we wouldn't we wouldn't play the strategic game. We would we would just take all three jumps at every height. And so even even when um, you know I couldn't improve my position, for example, on a third attempt at five eighty five, we still took that jump at five eighty five rather than passing it to five ninety on that particular day. And in and in Beijing, it made a difference. Mark, as an interested spectator, I'm sure you were sitting up late at night here in Australia watching that one. What were your thoughts going through uh, as you're seeing him go the third attempt, third attempt? You, did you know what was going on with the strategy? Uh, oh, were you over there? No, I wasn't there. No, I wasn't there. I was watching. I was getting text messages from billions of people. I was <laughs> on it and barracking and having heart attacks. When you have three, uh, three third-time clearances... Uh, at 585, 85 and 590 and 596 as it turned out after it was one. You know, that's not what you planned, but <laughs> three attempts. No, it was, I mean, I desperately, desperately wanted, you know, I knew he had a good chance, but I desperately wanted him to win. And, um, yeah, so I was very, very, very emotionally involved. 
Once you got over 580, Steve, you had the silver guaranteed though. So it was a third attempt clearance at 580, but it did mean you did have the silver in your pocket if I've read the, the score sheet That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. So that put yeah. me into the silver. I think that put me into silver because um, Yevgeny jumped it on his first. I think he jumped 580 on his first attempt. So I jumped into second place on that. You're right. But yep. then so 585, he'd, he'd already gone clear and I was behind him at that point in time. Yeah. So you're, you're playing catch-up. And how does that play with your mind when you are in that catch-up situation, knowing that really you've got to keep going and you've got to go higher in order to get that gold? Um, I don't know. At the time, I was just trying to survive, really. Um, my, my 585, so he'd gone clear at 585. I needed to clear it to stay in the comp. And it was the worst jump I did on the day, I'll be honest. Um, if you look at the replays of that jump, I, I missed my plant. My, my hand's slightly off-centre. And as soon as I take off, I start flying to the right um, and clear the bar somehow. I don't even know how. Any other day, I would have bailed out of that jump and tried to preserve my health. Um, But it's the Olympic Games and the third attempt, so you take it up and somehow found a way to wiggle my way over the bar and landed, I don't know, 10 or 20 centimetres from the edge of the mat. Lucky they've got big bags at the the Games. And, um, yeah, just, just stayed alive on that jump. But it was after that that I actually started feeling good. So I still didn't feel physically good on that jump. But after that, for some reason, I guess I must have had a huge adrenaline hit on that jump or something because my first attempt at 590, all of a sudden I was like, okay, now I'm running well. Now I feel good. Now I feel like I've got some rhythm and timing and actually feel like I've worked my way back into this. Well, I suppose if you've sort of muffed it a bit at 585, it's still gone over. You must think, well, okay, if I don't muff it, then there's more to come. Oh, I didn't really think that. I just, I don't know. I was just taking each jump for what it was. Like I, I was just trying to, to focus on whatever I could. And, and to be honest, like thinking back on this meet in particular, it's hard to remember too much of the details. Like you watch so many video replays of it, it's hard to understand what's, what was going through your head at the time and what you think watching the videos back. But um, I was just trying to just get it right. You know, nothing had felt good or smooth or consistent through the meet. And uh at the start, at 590, I started to move through poles. So I started to make poles soft, which meant I was hitting my run and hitting my timing and really making the pole work. So I knew I was in with a chance at that point. Well, I'll throw to Mark again. When you're getting to that stage of the comp, though, you're only down to two competitors, potentially. Um, the, fl- the, the attempts are then coming quicker, aren't they? So you're not getting that break. So how do you then manage the athlete or what does the athlete have to go through knowing that they don't have that space in time and that they will be up again fairly soon? Well, you've got, you, you do have a little more time in terms of the, the way in which the rules work. It's only like you've got two minutes between, but you're it was right. three it back is, then, I think. Three back, I think it was three in 2008. Was it, was it in 2008? I think so. Two now. It's got three. Yeah. yeah, it's two now. So, yes, it's, 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 uh, there's not much you can do. <laughs> you hope the, the officials knock the bar off every now and then by accident when they're putting it up so you get a bit longer rest because they won't start the clock until. The bars all set and things like that. So, but for, for me, it was working though, Mark. Like at that point, yeah. I, like I jumped five sixty first attempt. They had this huge break, and then it took like four or five jumps to really start feeling it again. And by that point, you're in a rhythm and you're actually okay. Like you know, you mm-hmm. still you get four to five minutes when it's all done, maybe a little bit longer between jumps, and that's enough um, mm-hmm. to, to keep going. So I, I kind of at that point feel like I at least got in a rhythm, and I, in the end, it felt to me like. Like, I think I described it afterwards, like it felt like a boxing match. Like there was just literally two of us at it. He would go, I would go, he would go, I would go, he would clear, I would clear. And that's just how it went, like 585 and 590. There was what, uh, there ended up being 12 jumps between us at those two heights. 
and that turned out to be the entire competition. And it was just, it just felt like what it would feel like to be in a boxing ring. He get, he tried something, I tried something, he tried something, I tried something, and we're just trying to just go with each other. And I, I and I just bring something out of you, you know, like and it definitely brought the best out of me. And my jumps progressively through my six jumps in that series got better and better and better um, to the point where I'm pretty sure like my second attempt at um, five metres 90, I, I really crushed the pole that I was on. I guess, Mark, for the pole vaulters listening, it was like a five metres 20, 11.3 that I was jumping on at that point in time. And I went up and, and after that jump, I know I looked over to Alex and we, we nodded at each other and we knew I was taking the next pole and, and taking my last jump on um, an 11.1, which is a one pole stiffer um, and felt good about it. Like felt really good and confident that that would work. The clearance at 590 actually was quite a good one, wasn't it, Steve? Yeah, well, it was the first time that, like, I'd really hit a run-up and I was on a big pole and it just caught me and you're off, you know? Like, I saw it happen again when I watched um, um, Tiago Brass jump in um, in Rio, you know? Like, it was just that gold medal jump. He had the right pole. Everything clicked. And when that happens, it's, it's the easiest sport in the world. You know, yeah. the run feels easy. The pole works properly. All of the energy gets shot in the right direction and you make it, like, oh, all of a sudden I've, I've struggled to clear 585 and now I'm jumping 5 metres 90 by nearly 20 centimetres or something. It, it just, um, it changes, it can change that quickly when you just time it up and you get all of the energy pushing in the right direction. It, it is very poetic, isn't it, when you do get that beautiful clearance and in looking at some of your footage, uh, the, the best jumps are the ones where you, you know, you, you get well over the six metre mark. There's no doubt about it with the clearance, and uh, it just looks delightful. But the feeling as you came down onto the mat with the at five ninety, and the the bar was still up there. What did you think? Uh, it all started earlier than that for me. Like on a, on a good jump, you feel it within the first couple of steps. You know the rhythm is there. Your pole your pole is balanced. Like you're not you you're not holding it up too long. You're not dropping it too early. So everything flows really neatly from there. And when you've got that feeling. It feels like a clearance from the first couple of steps and you're just not trying, you're trying not to stuff it up really. And that, that jump definitely felt like that for me. It just felt so smooth and so, um, so technically good in terms of the model that I was working with at that point in time. And um, you're just trying to wait, you know, like don't rush. Or the only thing you can do to stuff those jumps up is just rush it at the end and drop your feet and you can knock the bar off that way. So it's just being patient, waiting, getting all the energy out of the pole and, um, you know, not, doing anything silly with your arms when you go over the bar and that's it, you know, like then I suppose, yeah, you once you're well and truly past the bar, then you get this moment of it's, it's over. Because for me, you know, he'd, he'd, um, he'd missed his third attempt, Lukianenko, and I knew at that moment, you know, in that instant, you know, things had changed and I'd achieved this, this massive achievement that I'd set for myself and I'd, I'd visualised tens of thousands of times and, you know, worked towards with, with total discipline and, at that moment it changed and you, you knew it and it's a it's a cool experience it's the best thing about our event is you get to fall five meters and enjoy that <laughs> but it's also a life-changing event too isn't it steve you know getting the olympic gold look you've got so many other accomplishments but there's just something special about that olympic gold you had one in your pocket then it must feel good yeah i mean it's the hardest thing to win because it's one day in four years you know, for us, it's, it's genuinely like a two-hour window every four years. And if I look forward um, in London, I wasn't going great, but I felt like I was starting to put together some decent jumps coming into London and qualified for the final. And anything can happen on 
you know, a day like that, like you can find something within yourself. And I always believed I was that sort of competitor where I could find something, but just got sick the day in between, you know, came down with some sort of virus and was just taking all sorts of cold and flu medication on, on the day of the final. And I just felt like I floated through that whole day and never was present. And all of a sudden, four years is gone, just like that. So to look back at Beijing, having had that experience where I had an opportunity, I was in great shape. I had a great team around me. Um, it was still really competitive comp. You know, there was three guys jumping really well going in, but it was my, my opportunity and to have taken it, um, knowing how, how rare that is, um, that means a lot to me. Mark, what were your feelings when you saw that clearance at 590? Oh, just elation, really, just elation. I, I jumped up and down and I was with my family uh, at home and, uh, yeah, just, yeah, great excitement. Special moment for you too, isn't it? Because yeah, you've been so important in the development of the athlete, uh, done the handover, uh, which you know, obviously was a, a successful handover. And then you can you know, realise the fruits of your labours too when you see something, a performance like that, can't you? Oh, yeah. And I should say that Steve in particular and Alex as well always acknowledge me and all of the performances always, and always have. So, you know, I, I can't complain with any of that, anything like that. And in fact... When Steve came back from uh, the Olympics, like on the Olympic flight, uh, they landed in Melbourne and uh, he came and had, we had, came and had coffee early in the morning. I just was in work uh, in Burke Street in Melbourne. Um, we had to sit inside because he was getting mobbed by people outside. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, Steve, but I certainly do. I, I, I'd forgotten about it, but thanks for reminding me. I do remember yeah, it now. Yeah, yeah. You just, you just, you gave me a call. I'm somewhere wherever you were. I just anyway. So all right, catch up. No, it's not. It was great. That's a special moment, isn't it, Mark? You know, they're the things that obviously you'll never forget. No, 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 of course not. Let's get back to the jumping, though, or the vaulting, Steve, because one of the beauties of the pole vault, you get to do a glory lap, and that was to go for 596, which was the Olympic record. Talk us through that, because yet again, you you didn't do it easy. You, you know, left a, had a few goes at it. Uh, Yeah, well, I think... You sort of, I was so, I wasn't focused on anything beyond winning the thing. So that kind of happened. I went over, there was the hug with Alex on the track. I went over and celebrated with my teammates who were sitting in the stand right near the pole vault runway. And then there's a moment where I kind of like sit down and crouch on the track that my parents have a picture of that moment. And they said, that looked like the moment you really realized what had happened, which I kind of agree with. And at the same point, I thought, oh, I get to keep jumping. Cool. Yeah. And I kind of, I was sitting where, where um, my teammates were four years earlier and I watched Tim Mack jump 595 and Tim's a good friend of mine. And I was like, oh, Tim, Tim jumped 595. Now I'm competing against Tim. Cool. Let's see if I can <laughs> jump a centimetre higher than Mack. Um, so just, yeah, you know, put the bar up and my first jump was awful. My head wasn't in it at all. I was on a big pole and you've got to really be committed and making it all work. Um, and it was a shocker. I nearly landed on my head on the, the jaws, I think. Um, and, and you've got, we had five minutes, I think at that point in time between jumps. So I ended up not taking my second attempt. Um, you know, I poured a bottle of water over my head and tried to cool down cause it was a really hot night in Beijing and just took all the time between that first attempt and when I had to get on the runway for my, for my third attempt. Um, and really just let myself recover and let everything that had happened sink, sink in and then just thought, I'm just going to have one really good jump at this. And it ended up being my best jump for the day. Like that 96 jump was a bit of a monster and 
worked. I, I, I think I ran a bit harder and just got caught a little bit. It was a little bit close, got caught by the pole and it just shot me up in the air and it was a fun jump, you know, like it was, um, it was cool. It's cool to have an event where you kind of get to do a bit of a victory lap in your chosen event and that's certainly what that felt like. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, and Mark, you would have been looking on thinking, can he do it? Can he not? Oh, I was thinking he's got the gold medal. That's enough, mate. You know, <laughs> enjoy, do the lap. That's it, you know. <laughs> but, but it is quite unique, isn't it? That you do get that chance, like the 100-metre runners don't get to go and run the 100 again. Um, you know, uh, you know the, the middle distance runners don't do an extra lap, although they might do a victory lap if they won the thing. But it must be fairly nice knowing the crowd is just watching you, all eyes on you when you're doing this. Well, I think everything else is finished as well, so... All of the people that were left were watching me. I think about <laughs> third or half the stadium had gone by that point. It was getting pretty late. But uh, definitely any Aussie that was there had hung around and they, and they watched. So it's great. It's a good experience. And I've been lucky enough to have that a couple of times, you know. You know, that time I had in Mark and my last competition together at the MCG at the Commonwealth Games, I was lucky enough to have an entire MCG cut me in for a jump, which was a pretty wild experience. So it is. It's a very exciting thing to have happen. The two Melbourne yeah. boys having 80-odd thousand people, like you and me, yeah, at the, at the G. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's odd for two Carlton fans to have such success at the MCG, Mark. Uh, only in recent times. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, wonderful conversation about uh, Beijing 2008. Uh, great competition for you, Steve. Getting the gold medal, life-changing, It really, because it doesn't matter what else you do in your career, that's the one that sort of resonates, I think, with the Australian public and the worldwide public, and you've got one in your pocket, and congratulations. Thank you for that, and thanks, Mark, for the start. No worries. So great to go over your number three pick. Let's go to number two pick, Steve. We'll go in your... History as a pole vaulter, what do you see as your second best ever performance? Uh, well, if I, if I have to choose one jump for my number two, it's my 6.06 clearance at the Boston Indoor Games in 2009. It's still the Australian record and it's my personal best. But I would probably bundle that up with the comps that happened either side of it as well. So I jumped uh, five days earlier, I jumped 6.01 at Madison Square Garden at the Milrose Games and attempted the world record. And... Five days later, I think I jumped six metres in Paris um, as well and attempted the world record there. So within, you know, 10 or 12 days, jumped six metres three times, including my personal best. So that, that window um, was quite unbelievable for me. And, and they were the first three meets that I did after Beijing as well. So I hadn't competed since then. So you went in with a lot high profile too, so lots of expectation I can imagine. I just want to ask Mark a question on that. You know, you've been coaching for a long, long time uh, and you've had some great athletes under you over that time. Do you find that you do, you can get to this point where an athlete's in an absolute purple patch and you've got to try and, I don't know, manage that little situation because you know it's not going to last forever? Well, after a massive performance, often it's a big letdown. It's hard to keep keep going um so you've got to try and think of something else that's really exciting and i think probably that would have helped steve going and you know jumping indoors jumping jumping at the garden could you imagine that uh i can imagine that being as it turns out and with the results obviously a really good thing to have done but if you were coming back to compete in australian comps or something after after a big comp overseas often it is it is a letdown and it's hard for people to stay up so you know well managed by steve and alex at the time 
Just the whole indoor uh, scene, Steve, because it's not, you know, we don't have it here. Just enlighten us a bit, you know, particularly for an event like the pole vault, which sometimes as an outdoor meet can be shoved to the side and forgotten about a little bit. But you're up front and in centre at an indoor meet, aren't you? And it's very visible, particularly the heights. If you're hitting six metres, everyone knows how high that is, especially in an indoor stadium. Yeah, you're much closer to the crowd at an indoor meet. It's um, it's really fun. You're not worried about conditions. You just get out there and jump, and it's an awesome thing. Like I always loved competing indoors. It was, you know, I, I got most of my best performances were indoors. Um, yeah, just enjoyed it a lot. Just step out on the runway and start running. Take a jump. It's good fun, and it, and it was a bit less serious as well. It was it was never around a major championship, so you could have a bit more fun with your mates and all that sort of stuff between meets. That's certainly how I found it. Now let's get some context on what 606 means. That's the fourth best clearance by a pole vaulter all time ever. Uh, The only ones ahead of you are Duplantis, who's big in the news at the moment. Uh, He's got 618 uh, recently. Lavalini with, uh, did I pronounce that right? Lavalini, yeah. Lavalini, 616. at 615 they're the only three ahead of you and as you said you had a few good and sam kendrick's tied with me at 606 Uh aha okay so equal fourth fourth. you had a few good hit outs or goes at trying to get that world record which was held by bubka at the time wasn't it 615 yeah that's right so 606 at the time was the second highest jump so it was a centimeter higher than dmitry markov and maxim tarasov who were Tied for second prior to me clearing that bar. So, you know, it was, it was one centimetre higher than Dimmer, which, which was at the time the Australian record. So, um, yeah, and then, yeah, I, I'd attempted the world record in, in New York before. But, but a bit of context before those meets, you, you mentioned, you know, how do you, how do you get up from a big meet? I, I loved going to training after the Olympic Games. I'd, been so, I'd put so much pressure and I was so stressed going into, into Beijing. And it, I probably took a month off jumping after it. And my first couple of training sessions when I came back, I was just like, I couldn't believe how fun pole vault was. Like I'd forgotten how fun this event was. Back in the days when I was training with Mark, we would have such a good time jumping at Box Hill and I just hadn't felt it for a couple of years. And after after that break, I, I felt awesome with no pressure. I just really enjoyed my jump and I was able to start changing things and really feel my jump. And I was obviously in really good shape physically and mentally, so I was able to do that. And without the pressure of the Olympics on ahead of me, I, I just had a lot of fun. Uh, and I was going really, really good. Just felt so good and so strong. And then uh, was was doing a comp off eight steps, I think, like a practice comp off eight steps and, and just exploded a pole. And this was probably, oh, I don't know, five or six weeks before the Milrose Games. And one of the fragments of the pole smashed me in the side of my knee, my, my takeoff leg. And it, and it blew up so that I couldn't really do anything for two weeks. I was really keen, though, to go overseas and do these overseas meets. So the only thing that I had time to do before I left was one jump off my full approach before I went and um, went overseas. So like three days before we jumped on the plane, I picked up a pole, put down a marker on the runway, ran in, took a jump, and I was like, yeah, that felt all right. And then we packed up the poles and I went to New York. And I so I can't really explain what happened after that. I put a marker on the runway in New York and – for whatever reason, I was just feeling it. And I've never, ever pushed on the runway as hard as I did in New York. Like just from the first step, I was just attacking the run up and watching Mondo jump, um, you know, his, his two world records and, and, the, and the 608 and all that sort of stuff leading up to it. Just seeing how he was going, there's just this pressure that just starts from the first steps and never lets off until you, your body flies off the top of the pole. 
and that was the only time in my career when I felt like I was generating that on, on those jumps. And I was just, it just was easy. Like I was just pushing down the runway as hard as I could, hitting the jump as hard as I could and everything was just working in the air. The only issue I had in New York was I jumped 601 by quite a bit and um, knew I was going to put the bar to 616, put it up, but I was on the biggest pole in my bag. It was the 11.1. It was the same pole that I'd used in the Olympics, but it was too soft. And looking back, that was a meet where I, I probably should have jumped the world record. It was just, you never have it come together like that. And all I had to do was actually just pull back a little bit on the runway. If I just relaxed a little bit and just tried to, you know, make the jump bigger, but not as aggressive, it could have happened. There was enough in that pole for me to clear 616, but I just pushed a bit hard and was just couldn't, couldn't tone down the aggression. But I suppose as well, I mean, that's a function of I had one speed. I hadn't been doing a lot of jumps, so... I was making the most of what I could do, but yeah, pole was too soft, and I think that's what cost me the world record in uh, in New York. It's good of you not to blame the pole, Steve. Well, <laughs> well, I'll blame the pole in my next story. So what happens next is I'm obviously going all right. It was it, it, I think I won performance of the meet at Miro's Games for that, and it's you know I got a, a beautiful crystal trophy. It's one of my most prized possessions. It was the 101st Miro's Games. I got performance of the meet. It's a special thing, and the same meet promoter does the Milrose games and Boston indoor games. And the, the, the indoor track in Boston was rubbish. Like you're, you're running on this old Rekitan, like gym floor runway. And I was going so good. And I was like, mate, that runway I just jumped on in New York, that was amazing. And I was like, can we get that to Boston? <laughs> and so they loaded this runway from New York into a truck. So there was a bit of logistics that took place in five days. They loaded a runway from Milrose, um, Madison Square Garden, and took it to the Reggie Lewis indoor training facility in Boston and set it up for me there. And at the same time, my pole manufacturer made me a 10.8. So I pulled one pole bigger than what I had um, in my bag so that I'd have something I could attempt the world record on. Steve, do you reckon if you weren't the Olympic gold medalist, they would have told you to get stuffed? Every meat promoter wants to see a meat record broken, yeah. uh, Olympic uh, world record broken. So they'll do anything. So yep. They'll do anything for that. Yeah. That's it. That, a couple of blokes in a truck. That's a small price to pay yeah. to have someone attempt a world record at your meet. I think. Yeah. Um, so I'd ask for a runway and I'd ask for a brand new pole. So I was. I was it's fair to say I'd turn into a fair diva by the time I'd won the Olympic Games. Is what it sounds like. <laughs> but I thought I was a real chance to go to Boston and make that work. Uh, but it's fair to say that everyone was working under very um, tough circumstances, you know, short turnarounds, the poles. Where do paces get made? They make, get made in Illinois or something like that? In Champaign, right? Illinois. Champaign, Illinois. So, you know, there's a lot of work that they've got to do there, get them, get them, get them made, baked, taped up, transported. It's a lot to do in five days. The factory is but we're all very excited. Down, actually. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're in a lot of strife over there, I can tell you. Anyway, sorry, um, I digress. That's all right. <laughs> and then, and so, yeah, so that was the setup. That's, that's what happened in New York and then that's what happened in the days in between. And I felt, I felt ready to do something really good and having the same run-up in the indoor environment, it was just like we were continuing on the previous competition. You know, the same guys were competing, um, same run-up and I felt good and I can't even really remember the progression in that competition. I just remember I was going, well, I guess I must have jumped like a 570 and a 590 or something in the lead up to going to 606. Yeah, I, I can help you with that, Mr. Hooker. You, you came, came in at 562. So that was, uh, you passed oh, yeah. at 37 and 52. Came in first clearance at 562 straight over, passed at 572 and then first attempt clearance at 587. 
the bar then went up to 606. That's quite a rise, isn't it? It's uh, well, I was ready for that. I mean, I, I was going in there with a plan to jump that. So um, there was, I didn't want to jump six meters again. That's not what it was about for me. It was about, you know, improving on my position. So I knew that that, that pole would have, I was on, I was on that 11.1 that I jumped on in New York the week before in the, in the Olympic games prior to that. I knew that pole had 606 in it. And so, yeah, I think it took me three attempts to jump 606. I think I watched this the other day with Max, my oldest son. He asked me the highest I'd ever jumped. So I think I'd found some video somewhere on YouTube that showed it from a weird angle. Yeah, it, it is really unfortunate, isn't it? Because you know, in my research, I was trying to get this and I would have thought, okay, it's going to be up there on YouTube and everyone can see the, the magnificent 606, but it's very, very hard to find. You have to go delving into you know nooks and crannies of the athletics world right. to find this one. And it's uh, amateur footage as well. Yeah, and it's not a pretty jump either. Like if you have a look at it, and if any Povolders watch it, um, it's a fairly ugly jump. But what it is is full commitment. I was running as fast as I could from the first step. Um, I was hitting hitting my takeoff really hard, and I was the, it was the biggest I ever bent a pole, and it was the earliest I ever inverted on the pole. And it was just my inversion was so powerful and so far from the bar. And, and guys that are going well, you, you see that. You know, I remember seeing Brad Walker do it. You know, really crazy inversions a long way from the bar. And uh, I, I was certainly doing that on that day. And there's just so much energy flying around when that takes place. And it wasn't pointing in exactly the right direction on that 606 clearance, but it was doing enough that it got me over the bar and it was a bit of a messy clearance, but it was a clearance. And to this day, the highest I jumped. When you, you know, as a non-pole vaulter, getting into that position with your body, you know, the pole is, is bending and your body is going into sort of a backward type position, What's the thought process there? Or you've done it so often that it's just natural instinct. You know how to control the body movements as you go into those sort of inverted positions. No, you're sort of always trying to fight your instinct. So the the more aggressively you hit your shoulders into the, the pole, so as you invert, as you get upside down, the, the, more, the harder you hit your shoulders into the pole and the earlier you do that and with the more, more aggression you do that, the safer you make the jump. But it feels like the least safe thing you can do. The safest thing you feel like you could do would be keep your shoulders upright and keep your head upright and keep looking where you're going. But by doing that, you're actually releasing the pressure on the pole. So it's it's one of those counterintuitive things. The only thing I would say it's like is like riding a motorbike. Like if you're riding a motorbike, you've got to really drop into the corner and that's how you you, you keep the, the, you know, the right pressure through the tires and all that sort of stuff. If you sit upright and you try and turn a corner on a motorbike, it's going to slip out from underneath you. It's very much the same on a, on a pole. So you're almost fighting your instinct to keep yourself safe in a way. So the more you jump, the more comfortable you get with that. So third attempt clearance at 6.06, you then raise the bar to 6.16. Do you want to sort of go through how those attempts went? Yeah, well, so then I pulled the pole out of the bag. And the big one? The, the big one, the one that just got made. And, Mark, this is the point where I blame the pole. Oh. And uh, they'd obviously they, they made this pole, and, and all, all poles come with a natural pre-bend in them. So they're meant to bend only in one direction. So when you see a pole vault set up, you'll see them getting their hands in exactly the right position in the pole. So a right-handed pole, pole vault would have it so the pole bends away and to the left from them. Um, this pole, the pre-bend in it was just something off about it. Like I, it's hard to explain what it is, but it was a bit big and it was a bit wonky, the, the pre-bend, compared to the other poles in my set. And when, you, when you're like stepping on the runway and you're picking up a pole that I, I think it might have been the first time I ever took up a jump on a pole with a, a 10 in it, it was a 10.8. Um, you want it all to feel right and it just didn't. So on the runway, it felt like it was twisting in my hands. In spite of that, I think, I think having a look back at it, I might have had 
one go where I had a go at the bar, ran through on my second attempt and then maybe had a, had a go on my third attempt, but none of them really close. And that it just shows the difference that, that the smallest things can make in terms of your confidence when something just doesn't feel right. So at that point in time, um, what I probably should have done in hindsight again, like as being an old guy now and looking back and thinking, what do you, you know, not being an aggressive um, bullet a gate that I was back then, I would have said, that pole's not working for you. Put it down and just take 10% out of your run up on the 11.1 and clear the bar is what I would have done. But, and maybe even Alex would have told me something like that, but I probably wasn't going to listen. I was, <laughs> I was just in a, in a real, I've got this headspace. Was Alex at those meets, Steve? Was he following you around the States on that and yep. across yeah, the coast? He was, yeah, he was there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But you didn't talk to him? Uh, we would have, but I think I think we were both in the same headspace. Probably right. we've got this. Let's let's go for it. Yeah, we thought we thought it was our time. Like it was it was feeling like it was all going to happen, but it was just those small things, you know. Like it just felt awkward in my hand, and it was hard to then push as hard as I was on the runway, and certainly hard to hit the takeoff with confidence. Like like the difference in the confidence at takeoff between the six oh six clearance and the attempts at six sixteen was was noticeable. Had you done any practice with that pole? That's not possible, Tim. Yeah, because it's so big. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, like you, you practice on softer poles and you get ready for these things, but you only get to try them in competition. And, and that that pole, like, hardly anyone's ever jumped on a pole with a ten on it. There might be five guys that ever have. Yeah. I don't know. Would there be a bigger number than that, Mark? Uh, Chishnikov had bigger poles. Uh, yeah, Victor. Two meters. Yeah, Victor. Ten point zero five to twenty ten zero. I yeah. believe is close yeah, to so the world record. Big big guys. Okay, oh, Brits might have jumped Brits, on a ten point. But they're big guys. They are. Big, like, big, they all weigh over ninety. I was going to say huge people. Guys. Yeah, I believe Bubka's yeah. money pole was a ten point eight five twenty. I, yeah. I I think I've heard. So yeah, yeah. but vaulters. It's pretty common for a, a vaulter wants to jump as high as they can. They think I've got to be able to jump on this big big pole because if I jump on the biggest pole in my bag, I'm going to jump the PB. But um, and they waste a lot of jumps because of that mindset. Um, yeah. You know, that's and, and it's not every vaulter does it. I mean, they do it in training all the time. I've got to be able to use this pole. We say no, we'll go down a smaller pole. We we'll get more jumps eventually. No, that's not how a vaulter thinks. Yeah, well, and I think I think the guys that are going well now. Renault and Kendricks and Mondo, all of them, I don't, they're not obsessed with yeah. jumping on a big pole, yeah. none of them. They're actually all about, like, how does the jump feel? Like, how does it look? And and that that's the big thing that I've learned, you know, watching those guys is this this go hard, jump on big poles mentality. Um, you can burn bright for a little bit, but you'll, it'll be for a short period of time. It's hard to sustain that. And you saw that with all of those people I mentioned, Victor, myself, Ockert, it wasn't a long, sustained time that we were able to do this for. It's hard on your body and it's hard mentally to jump on big poles like that. Mm. My esteemed colleague, Sean Whip, believes that that 606 is potentially one of the best performances ever in Australian athletics. Steve, what do you think about that? Ooh, I was in Daegu when Sally ran pretty fast at the World Champs. That was fairly unbelievable, you know, in a far more competitive event than I compete in. So if you're saying all the events are equal, then maybe you're right. But if you look at how competitive the event is, that women's 100-meter hurdles, you've got some of the best athletes in the world competing in that. And I would say that 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 performance in that event by her was fairly unbelievable and off the back of a number of really good years. Probably one of the similarities, though, between you and Sally is the technical perfection when you get it right you know i've said that a lot about sally when you watch her and she's hurdling well it is just beautiful to watch isn't it 
Yeah, well, she's a better technician than me. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm. I started old, Tim. Like you look at Mondo. He started when he was four or six or something. Like I was 15 when I had my first session with Mark. Like it was, it was. I, I was a good athlete, and I could figure this a way to do this event out for myself. But I look back at my technique, and it's fine. There's a lot of stuff though that I would change. Like I've got not one of the best pole drops in the world, and that then caused me issues with my running mechanics. Um, what I did do was hit my takeoff hard and drop my shoulders hard and carry momentum. That, that's it, you know? Like I'd figured out that that's what I had to do to make a good jump. So technically, I'd figured out a way to do it. There, there would have been other ways that I could have done it that I think would have maybe prolonged my career, maybe or maybe not made me jump higher. But um, I don't think technique was my big thing. It was a very much a mind over matter thing for me. Are you content with the 606? Do you finish your career with a PB of 606 thinking, okay, I'll take nah. that? Nope. No, nah, no, no, no. You wanted the world record. I, I did, yeah. yeah. I think I attempted it on five separate occasions and I feel a little bit unlucky that I didn't jump it on any of them. You know, there was always just something that wasn't quite right. And But, but part, part of it was that attitude that I had. Like I, I, I thought it was always push harder and go harder and that's how you get a result. And I think sometimes when that big moment comes, you've just got to be able to rein it back just a little bit and, and that can work in your favour. And I just didn't have that in my, my arsenal, except for what I'll probably start talking about in about three minutes' time, which will be my number one competition. Yeah, but in order to be the best in the world, you have to think you're the best in the world, don't you? So that, that mindset is really, really important. Oh, 100%. You don't go out there and win unless you think you're going to go out there and win. And certainly through that period of time, and, and for me, it was there was a window between 2006 and 2010 where, you know, there, there was it was going to be me or one other guy. Yep. And in my mind, I, I always thought it's going to be me during, during those times. And um, it was that fierce competitiveness that, that drove me and made me do things that I was afraid of, basically, to, to push, push through things that I was afraid of all the time. I just want to go uh, down that, that whole period. I want to go down that track a little bit more. Mark, did you see this in Steve early on when he first started as a as a vaulter? Uh, I I saw someone who was really really keen who wanted to do pole vaulting and do every like he started. He was pretty young. I mean, he was in a group of pretty good athletes who were older than him, and you usually often and and we trained a lot. We trained every day, hard, seriously, all this sort of stuff. And he, as a young boy, wanted to train all the time and do every session and all this sort of stuff, which is dangerous for a young kid uh, to hurt them. So he was certainly very keen, uh, still growing, um, and so, you know, not very mature in his body and all that sort of stuff. So it did take quite a long while. But, yeah, the fact that he was always there, always wanting to jump and all that sort of stuff, no matter – and we had a lot of tough times, I can tell you. Steve, it wasn't – it's not all just one direction. Uh, he did it. No, it was, there was a, a lot of periods for me when it was mentally really tough yeah. to do the event. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll tell you this. When I retired, I was happy I wouldn't have to jump – when I wouldn't have to jump again. I was happy not to have to jump again at the end. It was always mentally tough for me. Always mm-hmm. I was overcoming something. Every, every time I picked up a pole, even in those meets when it was going really good, I was – battling myself well that that message comes through loud and clear when we do move on to your number one which will be coming up shortly but really fascinating as as a non-pole vaulter to to hear some of the background stuff steve and mark about what's going through your head and you know and the technical side too in that you know the pole choice and the feel of the pole is so important but uh i think 606 is pretty magnificent would have been lovely if you got the world record We'd, we'd love you even more then steve but 
Um, that is history, and Booker was there for so long, and now we've got the, the new generation. That generation's pretty exciting, isn't it, Steve, that we've got at the moment? It's unbelievable. I think um, it's going to be incredible to see. I, th- I think, you know, if you look at if you look at Bubka, you had someone there that was a beast of an athlete, a real beast of an athlete that took the event to another level. I think with Renault, you see someone who, up until Mondo came along, was the best pole holder that there's ever been. Got the most out of himself, I would say, is what Renault did. Um, you know, for his physical ability, he's a great athlete, but he's not huge, you know, like he's a little guy and just absolutely ringed everything out of himself by being so technically good and it's such a good pole holder, such good feel for the bar, the ability to take, you know, 50 jumps in a training session, you know, or sometimes I'm sure he's taken 100 jumps in a week. That ability just to get that repetition in and, and, and refine the craft, he, he's the best pole holder that I'd ever seen. And then you have Mondo come along and he's the two of those things combined incredible genetic athlete and a perfect pole vaulter that's already found his own way of doing the event that's different than anyone else has done it so um he's he's going to be unbelievable to watch for the next kendrick's is still pretty good too i can tell you like well that's the other thing kendrick's is is another guy that just falls into that bucket of like just wringing everything out of yourself you know like his his ability to push off a low grip he, he grips lower than all these other guys and competes with them it's, um, he's found his own way of doing it. Just one final comment on the 606 to Steve. Uh, your good friend Tim Mack was in that field when you jumped that, uh, getting a lot of support from Yeah, you would have enjoyed having him around. Yeah, well, but, but having, travelling with Budgie was the best thing Paul, yeah. with Paul Burgess, who's coaching the Australian athletes now. Like, we had we had the greatest time. Like, we, we, were, um, we were a couple of guys that had grown up watching European pole vaulters dominate. And, you know, I'll never forget the night we had in uh, Rome in the Golden League in 2006 and Budgie won the meet and I came second. And we're sharing a room and we got back to our room and we couldn't sleep, you know. Like we got back to our room and we were like, did that just happen? Did we just go one, two at a Golden League? Like this is not us. This doesn't happen to a couple of guys from Australia. <laughs> um, so to, have, to share a, a couple of years with Paul where we were travelling together and both competing well and just really enjoying ourselves is... That's my favourite thing that came out of my career, travelling with him and my mate Stephen Lewis from the UK and, and guys like Tim Mack. Um, that's the best bit, you know. You, you got to travel around with, with these really, really good guys, have a really good time. You were super competitive with each other, like on and off the track, but you'd always have a laugh. And, um, yeah, it's an amazing thing to be able to do. Yeah, it's certainly what athletics is all about, isn't it? So thank you. Great insights there. 6.06 Boston, February 2009. So Steve Hooker. Number one, what's the top of your list? Tell us all about it. Number one was the 2009 World Championships in Berlin, 5 metres 90. So the lowest height, but I believe the, of the three, but in my opinion, the, the best performance of mine through my career. Let's go more into this story. It is, when doing research, I'd forgotten a lot of this, as, as you do, you know, but you see a lot of things in athletics and, and time passes and it is you know, <laughs> over 10 years now, but in reliving it and watching the video of it, it was, as Mark Stewart will also say, probably one of the highlight performances in Australian sporting history ever. Hopefully not trying to overplay it, but really it is, it had everything. It had drama, it had physical excellence, and it had just, I suppose, for an Australian, pure grit and determination. Mark, your thoughts on that? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, if people aren't quite aware of what happened, he 
Steve was um, in red hot form in, in Europe. I remember get Alex sending me a video of his one of his training sessions, probably a month or a few weeks out before the World Champs, and I could see he was in really really good shape. And then he tore or strained an adductor muscle. Is that right, Steve? That's right, Mark. Yep. Yep. And basically, you know, and, and like it's a three week sort of injury, and it was less than three weeks to the World Champs, and uh, it's ten so, days out. Ten days out, sorry. Okay, so yeah, and and then Steve came into the world champs without any background and had to. Uh, well, you can tell the story, but yeah, it's it's for someone who knows about Povolt and knows what happened, there is nothing parallel. I cannot think of anything that what happened to come out and win a world championship, coming starting at, at what you started at and, and uh, without any preparation at all. All right, before we go fully into the story then, Steve, how were you feeling 10 days out? What was your thought process when you, know, you had an injury? And oh, oh, let me start. Event- I reckon a month out, I, I was with my, my girlfriend at the time driving in the car and I, I don't know how my mind works, but I kind of, I'm always like weighing up variables and scenarios and all that sort of stuff. And I was driving along and I still remember the intersection I pulled up in Cologne, Germany, where we were, were living and training. I pulled up to this intersection. I just looked at her and I said, I think I'm going to win the world champs. Like all of a sudden it all clicked in my head, like how my season was going and how I was jumping and how the next couple of weeks were going to play out. And I was like, I think I've got this. And just had this real feeling of confidence about it. And off the back of that thought, Mark, Mark mentioned this training session. I had a training session in Cologne at, at Leverkusen. This is, this is like the Povolt hub in, in Germany. They have this outdoor runway. And I was having this training session. And by the end of my training session, I reckon there would have been 50 people watching. And we had a hard bar at six meters in the training session and I was taking shots at it and nearly jumped it. Now, most people, I think the, the highest I jumped in a training session might've been like high 580 or something like that. And I was having real goes at, at 590. So if you asked if I'd ever jumped on the 10.8 in training, that, that session was the closest I ever went. And I think two training sessions later is when I tore my adductor. Um, so I, I thought at that point, I'm going to the Worlds. I'm not just going to win here. I'm going to go and break the world record at the World Champs. Like that's how good I thought I was going. And then 10, 10, um, 10 days out, I was doing an eight-step drill, took off the ground and just felt a little something in my leg. And I never really had a muscle tear up to that point. And I was like, oh, what's going on there? And then didn't, I just left it. Like we didn't need to do the training session. So we just stopped. It was the day before we caught a bus from Cologne as a team to Berlin. So I sat up the back of the bus, kept my leg elevated, iced the whole way. We got into Berlin in the afternoon and I went and got it scanned and it, and it showed a 10-centimetre tear in my adductor. And at that point, they're like, this is three weeks. you got no chance. And so I was like, oh, okay, fine. So, uh, you know, and, and it was at that point that um, a good friend of mine, Dave Colbert, gave me some really good advice because, you know, one bit of advice was we can't tell the media about this if you want to have any chance of doing this, you know, like getting there, you, you can't have anyone focus on this injury. And I was like, well, if I'm not going to jump, it's because of this and it's happened. I don't want to go and tell them 10 days ago something happened and make an excuse later. I'm, I'm an honest guy and I like being transparent and I want to talk about this. So Dave, Dave Colbert said to me, if, it, if it's happened, you should tell the truth. So I, I said, I've torn my adductor. I don't know if I'm going to be able to jump. And so at that point, I'd given up on everything. So within a space of 24 hours, we'd, we'd travelled, I'd got the diagnosis and I'd, I'd basically told everyone that I was, I was potentially out of the championships. Um, and then, you know, a day, the, the next day, sat down with my, Alex, my coach, um, the doctor, um, Dr. Disco, Adam, Adam Kastrupim, mm-hmm. and uh, Shane Kelly, who was my physio, who was training with me. And we just thought, look, let's do everything we can every day to give ourselves the best chance of going. 
And it was like walking around the track for the first training session. And then like three days later, it was easy running. And that was it. Like I, I, I did a, I did a 50% stride, I think the day before the qualifying round. And then, you know, we, we got to the day before and we thought, well, are we going to have a go at this or not? Like if I go out there and have a run at full speed, there's a risk of further injury. So we came up with a plan for the qualifying round and the plan was you're not going to do a warm-up. You'll get therapy out on the track. Um, the way this, the pole vault works, 90 minutes before the event starts, you go into the call room, you sit under the grandstand for 30 minutes, they check all your stuff and then you go out on the track and you've got 60 minutes to warm up. Then people use that time to check the runway, move through their poles, do their drills, make sure everything is right so that for their first jump in the competition, they're ready to go. Almost the rest of the world was doing that. I went over and asked Alex if he could get me an espresso from the um, the, uh, the concession. Then I sat down and drank a coffee and watched everyone go about their business. Um, and that was it, you know. Like we had to pick a height that we thought with one jump would make me the final because I thought if I do one jump, this is going to really hurt and I don't know if I have another jump in me. And so we did that and we, we waited and watched and the bar got to 5 metres 65. That was the height that made the Olympics the previous year and we thought this will be it. I don't, if we can jump 565 first attempt, there's not going to be more than 11 guys that jump higher than that. So let's, let's, let's make our jump here. We know the pole. We, we know what sort of jump it takes to jump 565. I can do that jumping at 85%. So we put down a marker. I picked up a pole that I thought would be the right pole to clear that bar. I'm guessing it would have been like an 11.8, 5 metres 20, um, and took a jump. You know, like that was the first time I ran really full speed, you know, since doing the injury. And as I took off, obviously everything stretched out and it really hurt, you know, like everything kind of went black and my body went into autopilot and I completed a jump. I, I, it wasn't a conscious thing. It just happened. And I clear the bar and land on the mat and I'm like in shock and pain and go over to Alex and say, well, I think I've made the final, but I don't think I'm jumping. But you know, but at that point we thought, well, again, we did everything we could this week and we didn't think that we'd get this far, but so let's do everything we can do. Um, and, um, what it showed was I was still jumping good. Even, even with all this stuff going, I was still jumping good. So we did ice baths and we compressed and we did all of that sort of stuff. Can I interrupt? I think Adam, Adam, I've talked to Adam about casting him the doctor and he said that that jump in the warm up then gave him a clearer idea of exactly where the injury was. Uh, and so was better able to treat it or something? Yeah, well, so, so, so we actually came up with a plan and we thought, well, I'm, I can move. I can clearly move. It just hurts. So we, and this is, you know, this, people know this about this event and it's been a debate whether this is, you know, the right thing or the wrong thing. But within the rules, you're allowed to be administered with the authorization of the competition, a local anesthetic during a competition. And so we thought, well, if we can dull the pain in this little area, it's not a performance enhancer. It's just getting me back to what I what I should be able to do, you know, in my current state. So, we we got the authorization from um, the organising committee, and they said, "Yep, during the competition, you can leave the competition area. You can go to the medical room, and you can be administered with a local anaesthetic." That was that was authorised by the IAAF. And so we had to pick our moment, and our, what what we went into the meet thinking was, if if we can scrape a bronze medal here, this would be like one of the great escapes. And so we thought we'll just pick the height that we think we'll, we'll, win a, we'll win a medal. And the big issue we had was everyone jumped too good. Uh, well, everyone was out of the competition at 580 in, um, in uh, Beijing, but everyone was still in it in Berlin. So it was too, too low. 
So I had to pass every height. Same same thing as the qualifying round. No no warm up. Watched everyone do their thing. No no jumps in the competition. Just sat around and watched, and just mentally prepared myself to take one jump. And the bar went through 560, 570, 575, 580. And there were still too many guys. I wasn't guaranteed that I'd win a medal with a jump. So it felt like it would be a waste. So I passed 580. And a number of people went out of the competition at that height. And I thought, all right, 585, this is it. And we'd sort of known, you know, the time that this local anesthetic would last for. So I'd gone off maybe 30 minutes before that and seen Adam under the stadium and he was the most nervous person I've ever seen. It was the, it was the funniest thing ever. So he, he goes to give, give this injection into me. And this is his big day, you know, his moment to shine. And the first time he tries to get it in, it just explodes everywhere. And there's just local anesthetic that went over the entire medical room. And we just lost it laughing. It was very, very funny. And then his second attempt was, was a success. He put it in. And, um, you know, 10 minutes later, I, I started doing my strides and actually felt pretty good. So, you know, there was this sort of local injury that was painful but not really affecting my movement. And so once, once we'd done that, I thought, okay, well, I can, I can run here at sort of 90% pace. But what I'm going to have to do now is jump 585 on a big pole running at 90% pace. Um, and, yeah, so the, the other thing that, that happened during those 10 days, which I haven't mentioned, is um, Andrew Little. He's, he's a biomechanist from the Western Australian Institute of Sport. He, he did something for me. He put together my highlight reels, like my best jumps that I ever put up. So Beijing, Boston, 606, and a couple of other jumps that we picked out. And he just created this little video that I could loop through, watching them in real time, slow motion, real time. And I just got the rhythm of those jumps really ingrained in me. I watched, watched them. I probably watched a couple of thousand jumps in that 10-day period. And for some reason during the competition, the other guys would be jumping, but rather than watching them, I was almost overlaying in my mind the jump that I wanted to do for myself. And I was just rehearsing it over and over again. Every jump was a rehearsal of what I was going to do when I had to step on the runway. And so when I step on the runway, uh, it's the first time I've, the second time I've picked up a pole since I've had an injury essentially and um, step on the runway, run down and take a jump. And it's, it's the sort of jump I should have done in New York or Boston earlier in the year, you know, just taking the foot off the accelerator, but doing everything really, really well, just running with good mechanics really hitting all of my, my markers, timing everything really well. And what I put up um, with my 585 um, first attempt is it's still one of the best jumps I've ever done in my life, I believe, technically. Um, Can I just jump in there for a sec? One of the things also is, is Alex Parnoff, a coach, he records everything. He writes everything down, like every single jump, pole, grip, stands, what happened, et cetera, et cetera. So he had a massive amount of information about what will yeah, happen and therefore picking Picking which pole, where to grip, where to put the stands, how to run, which marks, all of these sorts of things. There's yeah. lots and lots of things. And and it's just because of his meticulous uh, attention to detail that just contributed so much to that that performance. Uh, you know, it would have been Yeah, very- agreed. I, I had confidence that I had the right pole and I was on the right run up. Yeah. And that's something. You're not going to take off and do that without a degree of confidence. And that was you know, in the, in the 12 months that we had leading up to that, but also that, that attention to detail and that we were that across the numbers, yeah. we, we knew that we were in the ballpark of what would work. Yeah. Um, but that, that 585 jump was so good. Like I, I reckon I had 15 centimetres on it for my first jump of the day, 15 centimetres on 585. And I, I think I came down on it. I was maybe a centimetre or two short of having the depth in that jump to clear the bar. Like it looked like I was over for all money and then I just hit it with my chest on the way down. Um. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the you know I've watched the replay of that 
jump a lot of times and there's this look of just pain and frustration and disappointment on my face when I land on the mat. Because I thought that yeah, was it. I thought I was done. I didn't think I had another. That's right. Me. The, the miss at 585 and you knew that you weren't going to have many jumps in you. The next move was to go to 590. Uh, Mesnel, he'd cleared 585. Uh, the, he then had one attempt at 590. So the bar goes to 590. So, Steve, just tell us what happens when we go up to 590. Yeah, well, I was over talking to Alex when Romain Manil went over at 585. And so we were like, okay, well, it's not another jump at 585 here. If we're going to do this, like I've got enough height, we, we go up. And we just said, do the same jump. So we made one change. The only change we made was to move the uprights five centimetres closer. The only change we made between those two things. They passed a 5.9 and moved the uprights five centimetres closer. Where, where were they, Steve? Uh, I can't remember. I reckon they might have started the meet at 50 and come to 45 or been okay. at 55 and come to 50 or something like that. Generally, yep. at, at that time, I was jumping with them reasonably close. With them close. close, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it'd be good to look back and see. Um, and that was it, you know, like I, I just had this one jump and I thought, okay, there's, I've got an opportunity to have one more jump here, just do exactly the same thing. And I did it, you know, like I think having, having that repetition of watching my best jumps over and over again, the rhythm and the timing and, and the, the kind of overall look of what those jumps looked like and the consistency that they had between them. I just had that, that rhythm within me and I just kind of let it happen. I wasn't pushing. I wasn't trying hard. I wasn't to hit trying to hit anything too hard. I was just trying to do a really good, clean jump. And um, yeah, I, I, as it turned out, I did basically identical jumps from, from one to the other. If you look at the speeds on the runway, you know, the peak height of my hips, all that sort of stuff, all the trajectories, it's almost like you could overlay those two jumps and they'd be exactly the same. But the difference of having the, the uprights five centimetres closer meant it was a clearance. And that was that after, after I jumped that 590. You know, um, Remain was in the comp. I don't know if Renault had passed and was still jumping at 590, but they both missed um, their, their remaining attempts. And Well, it was a fascinating was comp. It. So this, is, this really plays into it, you know, not just the dramas that you were having, but also the dramas around you. And this is, you know, one of the great things about pole vault is, is the, the ability to pass and go to a new height and, and take your chances. It's a gambling game out there, obviously, and strategy comes into it. So, yeah, Levenley, uh, he cleared 580. He then had an attempt at – so you've got the 590 by the time they're going through 585s to 590. Oh, he would have passed a 595 yeah. afterwards he, to go for the did. win. Yeah, he did. Yeah, so he actually – he he then um, had one attempt at 585, 590 and 595 and missed each of them. Yeah. Uh, so when you've got the 590, you didn't have the win in your pocket at all because you still had two live jumpers. Yeah. Uh, and you're just sitting back, obviously, waiting and seeing what they could do. Did you have another jump in you? Uh, probably not. No, who, who knows? But I, I wasn't keen on another jump, i tell you that much. I was keen on them missing and me not having to do anything else. Um, <laughs> what was the, what's the pain the, level? The smart, the smart move for Renault would have been, I think, at that point in time, taking, taking his other jump at 590. But again, he was young, right? That was him. That was his first really big year. He'd just come off jumping 6.03, I think. Jumped in in Portugal early in the season. And he was the red-hot favourite going in. And I think if he'd had his time again, he would have taken another jump at 90 and given himself three goes at 95. Kind of knowing that I probably wouldn't have had any more jumps in me. You know, like, let, let me, let, let, give me three good jumps at 95 and taking the win. Um, but, you know, it, it played out. I think, I think what I did really surprised everyone. Like, it shocked everyone 
And I think that if, if someone had done that to me in a competition, I probably would have struggled to recover from it because you just don't expect it. You don't expect to see a guy sitting there for three hours, get up and then just win the meet in two jumps. It just doesn't happen. Um, Did the opposition know the extent of the injury, Steve, or you'd kept that pretty no, close to your chest? No, everyone knew. They knew. Everyone knew yeah. I was hurt, yeah. What, what was the support level from the your, your competitors out there as well? Um, or does that not really happen in at, when you hit the runway of those comps, that there's not a lot of talk? And uh, It depends. The guys that were out of the meet, like that I was – that all my mates that were out there, they were, they were supportive and we were having chats about how it was all going to work and – but I, I don't know. I, I don't have much memory of it. I was really in my own head. Like it was a, this was a meet that was all about going inside and finding something. So whilst it was all going on, I've got very little recollection about what anyone else's jumps looked like, anything else that happened in that stadium that day, other than just sitting there and thinking a lot, like thinking about this jump over and over again, what it was going to feel like, how I was going to do it. Like every moment, you know, like I was, I'm going to walk over here, pick up the pole, stand on the runway. It's going to feel like this. I'm going to take off down the rump. It's going to look like this. It's going to feel like this. This is going to be the rhythm. I had to have that because I hadn't practiced, because I wasn't working my way into the competition by taking jumps. I had to do it over and over and over and over in my head so that when the moment came, I could do it. Um, so there's very little that I took in from the whole rest of that day. Um, it was just in my own head, in my own bubble for that whole time just trying to give myself the best chance of making making it happen. Well, the remarkable stats are in the final, you had two jumps, only one clearance, but you won the world championship. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah, and, and by far the best performance of my career in, in terms yeah. of, of being able to achieve something, um, you know, that salvaging something and, 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 and mentally, mentally by far the best performance. Um, because, because my, my speed on the runway, generally when I was going well, any other time I would have jumped 590, my speed on the runway would have been about 9.6 metres a second. And in that comp, it was like 9.1 or 9.2. So we're, like this is not a small amount. Like this is 5% down on, my, on the speed that I would run on the runway, yet put the jump together. So it's, a, it's like a completely different person doing the event than was doing it previously, yet it still came together. Yeah, being a coach myself, the the one thing I was when I was listening to that fascinating process you're going through, it is the power of visualization. And Mark, you know, you're a very experienced coach too. To have an athlete who can do that and then to execute, that is a pretty special being, isn't it? Because not everyone can do it, but it just shows you, particularly if there's any young athletes uh, listening to this uh, particular episode. Visualization is a very, very strong thing. You know, forming those neural patterns in your brain and then just letting the body take over. Oh, for sure. I mean, pole vaulting, well, any any sport in particular, but yes, you've got to be able to, you've got to know what you want to do to be able to do it. All, all of those three jumps that I've described today, there was no thinking taking place during those jumps. It's all done before you step on the runway, you know, at that level of performance. Mm-hmm. You're not, you're not figuring it out as you're doing it. You know exactly what it's going to look like, exactly what it's going to feel like. Like I, I described all of those jumps. The 606 was a bit different. It was really aggressive and I was just thinking, go, go, go. But I wasn't thinking about the detail. But, you know, the, the jump in Beijing, there was not one thought. It was total autopilot. And, and likewise with, with, with Berlin, it was like, if I'd been thinking about anything, I would have thought myself out of it. It was just, there was this rhythm that I knew I had within me. And if I hit that rhythm, it would create the shape of this jump and I knew that that could result in a good performance and I just let just let it happen just got out of the way of my myself and and let it happen Steve 
you know, you, you've talked about the emotions of winning the Olympic gold, but this one, was this a bit special? You know, you would have then had to sit back and watch the other competitors fail. And on that last fail, when you knew you had it, just what was that feeling that you had? What went through your, your mind and your body? Um, I mean, when I made the clearance, I was very emotional. And you see that if you look at a replay of it, like it's, it was a very hard thing to do. Um, so it was, it was very emotional at that point in time. And then, that, then I just had to kind of sit back and watch what everyone else was doing. And I won and it was kind of just not real, I guess, because <laughs> the most surreal is, I, think, I don't know, it wasn't, wasn't a real thing, you know, like I... I tell you what I thought. I just had, I just done two jumps and that, you know, like it was a very strange experience for me to go through. I thought it was a miracle. <laughs> well, I think that's putting Seriously. it a bit far. But, no, but no, it was no, just, no. it was just odd, you know, like you don't expect, no matter what way, even, even in my own mind, I never thought I would have left that day as the world champion. Let me put it that way. I thought my best because Renault was going good, Remain was going really good. I thought if this goes perfect for me, I'm going to come away with a silver, and I'm going to be so happy with that. So to come away with a win, I was like, "This is this is something altogether different." And then it was just it, it just continued getting weirder. You know, I couldn't run a victory lap, so I got to I walked a lap of this amazing stadium in Berlin. We just walked, and it took a long time, and we just sort of waved. And then I'm in the mix zone, and I have Bolt and Powell coming up to me, just saying. Man, what was that? Like, just just blown away by what had happened, and uh, it was it was very it was a very strange thing, honestly. Um, and like, everything came together, like every possible thing that could have came together. I was very lucky with the team that I had, and um, you know the, the way that we all worked together, and you know the videos that um, um, Andrew had made for me, the way that Shane had kept me sane and, and kept me moving during the ten days how the doctor had helped me out and the plan we put in place there and all the technical stuff that Alex had done. Like the fact that all of that stuff came together meant that we had this one in 10,000 chance of doing this nearly impossible thing and it, it all worked, you know? So I what, just was Alex's, what was Alex's response to, so I'd be fascinated to know he, what he... He ripped Adam Kastrickham's T-shirt. He was right next to him. <laughs> and I think that, that ripped T-shirt is still up on the wall in, in Adam's office, if I, if I remember correctly. I think it is, actually. I've seen Adam as a patient not that long ago. <laughs> uh, look, a, a magnificent moment. And, Steve, you must really reflect on that. These videos and things that you've got of your career, you said before that you know your eldest son does like to see these. Is, is that a, a sort of a special moment for you that, you know, Max is interested in this and he, he does care about what you did in your competitive career? Um, well, he likes watching because I'm, I'm, these days you see a lot more of it than you would have back then. Like, like even now, like we're in lockdown and I'm like, oh, cool, check, hey, Max, check out this jump that Renault did in his backyard. And he's like, oh, that's awesome. Or we talk about Kendrick's, he jumps in the forest. You know, like all these jumps, he's jumping in the forest. How cool is this? And then, then you know, every now and then he asks about one of mine or how high did you jump and what does that mean? And he, He's only now just at the age where he finds that cool. But the funnest thing for me is seeing Benny, my little one, like my four-year-old. He's he's like a he, he just loves moving around, and he'll just anytime there's like a stick around, he does like little pole vaults. Like he just runs up and like sticks it into some grass and does a mini pole vault. And I'm like, what are you doing, mate? Like this is, you know, not, not something we've spoken about, but he just you know runs around and does it. I love that. I love seeing seeing him do that. And if it's something they enjoy and have an interest in and want to have a go at, I'll you know I'll encourage him to do it. And I think w- with what I've learned about all of these things and what, what I see with, with the way that Sam and Renault and, and Mondo go about their jumps. I'll go away, I'll go about like introducing them 
to the event with all of those lessons behind me. And that really excites me. You know, I really think that all of the, I had a lot of good things happen to me, but I had a lot of things as well throughout my career that made it quite hard for me. And if I can, I think I've got a way of, you know, showing them how to do it where it will just be fun. And if it can just be fun, then it doesn't matter how good they are. Um, they, they'll, it'll be something that's really positive in their life. But the second part of that is if it's just fun, they're probably going to be better anyway. Yeah, look, uh, I wish more coaches and uh, you know, parents would take that attitude that uh, for those kids, they've got to enjoy what they're doing, don't they? And, and I think when you reflect back on your early stages uh, as an athlete, because you came from an athletic family, you must have enjoyed the process. And as you said, you know, the training, you enjoyed that. So that's what keeps you in, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, working with Mark in the early days, it was just the group. It was just the funnest group of people to be around. We were all young. We were all doing the same thing and we loved it. Um, and it was it was really, really great, like a, a great thing to be a part of. And it's why even when I was having tough times mentally with the sport, I would keep turning up to training was because I was part of this club and this community and this, this group of people that was doing something um, so enjoyable. Now, a remarkable thing that each of these three top performances, though, all took place in cities starting with B. So we had Beijing, Berlin and Boston, and you're also a Box Hill boy, then the son of Bill, so that uh, the letter B, <laughs> I think that's your letter. <laughs> well, I think they all happened pretty much within 12 months as well. I think the dates were almost the same. I think Berlin might have been the 22nd of August and Beijing was the 22nd of August, so it was almost a year apart exactly as well. Yeah. So all those, all those happened within 366 days, I think. So it was, it was certainly a window where it all clicked for me and it, it, if there was a time where it felt easy, it was that time. It still wasn't. It still didn't feel for me like it looks for the boys that are jumping now. But um, if there, if there was a time where it was working and I and I felt like I had a good rhythm, it was definitely that window. Well, Steve Hooker, I believe it was one of the greatest years in Australian athletics and three of the greatest performances by an athlete ever who wore the green and gold. So, congratulations on a great career, uh, and it's so good to still see you, you know, involved. You know, you're there on the, the periphery of the sport still, which is good. And do you, are you thinking about the coaching career at any stage? I'd like to. I think that's where I can add some value. But you know, there's a few things I've got to do between now and then. I've got another part of my life which I'm exploring now. I'm, I'm really working hard on my my professional career and business and. You know, I've got passions in that in that area, which I'm really enjoying exploring and, and, and seeing how far they go. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it will be inevitable that I'll, I'll be dragged into, into doing some sort of coaching with my kids and, and maybe some kids around the neighbourhood where I live at some point in the near future. And we'll see how that all goes from there. Yeah, well, Mark Stewart might be looking for someone to pack up the poles and hold his grandchildren now. So <laughs> time know. moves on, doesn't it, Mark? Yeah, you never know. <laughs> All right. It's been an absolute pleasure to have both of you gentlemen on board for the first episode of Three, Two, One. Steve Hooker, magnificent career. Well done. Mark Stewart, your contribution to our sport in this country. Uh, it goes, I think, unrecognised, uh, but uh, those in the know know exactly what you do and what you have done and continue to do for athletics and particularly the pole vault event in Australia. So thanks, guys. been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Thank you Jim. very much. Jim. Thanks, Mark. Cheers. Thank you.